and welcome to this podcast for the American Journal of Gastroenterology. My name is Millie Long, and I'm one of the co-editors-in-chief of the Red Journal. And on behalf of myself and Dr. Jazz Bahaj, who's my co-editor, we would like to welcome you to our monthly podcast. And today I have a fantastic guest, Dr. Michael Camilleri, who's going to be speaking to us today about his new gastroparesis guideline. Dr. Camilleri is professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Michael, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Millie. Glad to be here. Well, I, I over the next 20 minutes or so, I know I'm going to take a lot away. This is a, a diagnostic and therapeutic problem for many of my patients. And I, I really enjoyed reading the, the guideline. And, uh, you know, one of the key parts I really enjoyed was some of the algorithms and all the recommendation, recommendation statements. Could you tell us a little bit about the process that goes into building one of these guidelines? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So the wonderful part of the guideline discipline is that it involves content experts, but it also involves a very rigorous uh, work done by the librarians to identify the papers. The content experts then go through the papers that are identified from a good literature search, and then they identify which papers have the type of, of data that can then answer the specific questions that were posed initially by the content experts and then reviewed and approved by the leadership of the American College of Gastroenterology. So we knew that we were on track to try to address really important questions. Then after the content experts identify those papers pertaining to each one of those questions, then we have experts to assess the weight of evidence and the recommendations. And they are usually using the grade criteria. And we had two wonderful colleagues do that and part, part of our, our authorship group, Reina Yadlapati and uh, Dr. Katerina Greer, who both participated but gave us the expertise required to make very strong or uh, reasonable statements regarding the, the questions that were posed and uh, what we can take away from, from the current information in the literature. Well, what lengthy process, but the end product hopefully is going to be really useful for our listeners, because obviously we're going to be, by utilizing these guidelines, we're actually going to be practicing to the highest evidence base. So let's dig in. And in regards to gastroparesis, there are lots of topics that you covered in the guideline. One of the first was diagnostic testing. Can you talk to us a little bit about what uh, the guideline recommends for modality of testing, do's and don'ts? So there were probably two very important do's. So let's start with those. So the gold standard still is the scintigraphic measurement of gastric emptying, but it's important that we give the patient a meal containing solids. The radio label should be bound to the solid meal. Typically it's an egg meal. And the other really important detail is that we follow the emptying of food from the stomach for a period of at least three hours and ideally four hours. Now, the good news is that many years ago, it was demonstrated that you don't need to take a scan every 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but you can simply take a scan at every hour. So immediately after eating the meal and then one, two and three and four hours later. So that still is regarded as the gold standard. An additional test that has a good performance characteristics compared to scintigraphic gastric emptying is a gastric emptying breath test in which a stable isotope is incorporated into a solid meal and breath samples can be 
collected and sent to a centralized laboratory in order to estimate the gastric emptying parameters. So those are the two premier gastric emptying measurements that are recommended. In the past, in the distant past now, radiopaque markers used to be used to assess gastric emptying. Now, you will all remember that radiopaque markers are non-digestible solids. They empty from the stomach, not with the meal itself, but with the restoration of interdigestive motility. And so they're not very accurate for measuring the emptying of the digestible meal. And similarly, a wireless motility capsule is a good device, excellent device for measuring small bowel and colonic transit, but just like the radiopaque markers, it doesn't really empty with the digestible meal. And so it doesn't always give us an accurate gastric emptying measurement. So in summary, scintigraphy and breath tests are recommended, radiopaque markers not recommended, wireless motility capsule, not recommended for the stomach, but still very valid for small bowel and colonic transit. That's really helpful. And, you know, obviously in my practice, we haven't really incorporated the breath test modality as much as the, as the scintigraphy. Is that more readily available now, you know, across the U.S., or is that more in isolated locations? It's actually approved by the FDA, and it is commercially available. And it's relatively easy to administer, but it may be that the center, the, the office, the practice has to embark upon the administrative activities of having the breath test available and then having the mechanism to send the, the breath samples to the centralized laboratory in order to get the results of the test. But it certainly sounds like it's great to have options, um, reliable options that have an evidence basis behind them. You know, moving out of testing, let's move into treatment. And obviously there are two main categories of treatment, dietary and then pharmacologic management. Talk to me about dietary recommendations. Has this changed over the years or has it been consistent? What does your guideline recommend from a dietary perspective? So, so the, the, the guideline <laughs> recommends uh, the use of a small particle diet for uh, symptom relief. And the really good news is that Compared to the 2013 ACG guideline, which I was very fortunate also to lead the, the group, at the time, we said low fiber, low fat diets, preferably with small particles. But since then, there actually is a randomized controlled trial that came out of Gothenburg in Sweden, and it demonstrated that if you actually have a small particle diet, and you give that to your patients with gastroparesis compared with a diet where the particle size is not reduced by putting the food in a blender, for example. Well, this uh, randomized controlled trial showed that there was significant benefit from a symptom perspective. Many of the symptoms of gastroparesis, like nausea, early postprandial fullness, bloating, those symptoms got markedly better with a low, small particle diet. So now we actually have the evidence base for what has been a clinical recommendation for the last quarter century. Uh, so that's really important. Also remember that non-digestible fiber, and I usually tell patients anything that crunches under your teeth, is not easy for the stomach to break down. And so we need to cook it, put it in the blender and take it as a, as a thick soup. And then finally, a very high fat diet is going to slow down stomach emptying. Mm -hmm. 
Great. Um, I'm so glad to hear we have the evidence basis now to, to make these recommendations. Really important for our patients. Many obviously do respond to dietary management, but others, we do need to add in pharmacologic management as well. What, what are your recommendations from that standpoint? So the, the first general recommendation is that pharmacological management is indicated over no treatment at all. So that's kind of a bland statement. And more, two more specific recommendations were that metoclopramide should be used over no treatment. That's another recommendation. And similarly, if domperidone, which is mostly an antiemetic, is available, that could also be beneficial for symptom relief. In general, the difficulty we have is that there is a black box warning around the use of metoclopramide. Mm -hmm. And there is a small risk of tardive dyskinesia, which is an irreversible neurological involuntary movement. We have to be very careful when we talk about involuntary movement with metoclopramide. Thankfully, in the vast majority of patients, you stop the metoclopramide and the involuntary movement goes away. In a very small number of patients, which has most recently in the literature, it's been estimated to be one in a thousand to one in 10,000 patients, the involuntary movement unfortunately is permanent and that is tardive dyskinesia. Mm -hmm. Now, the warning or the recommendation from the FDA is not to give metacopromide for more than three months. And of course, we as practitioners appreciate that patients often have symptoms that go on for longer than three months. So one of the precautions one has to take is to make sure that if one is going to be prescribing this medication, one needs to be documenting in the medical record that the patient has not had adverse effects, that the risk of adverse effect has been discussed with the patient. Mm -hmm. So so those are the two med medications that are named kind of thing in the, in the guideline. Mm -hmm. From a clinical perspective, there are other medications that can be used that are obviously off-label, but that may be very beneficial for the patients. We know, for example, that erythromycin can be helpful for a short period of time before it becomes, you know, before there's tachyphylaxis or it, it no longer remains as eff efficacious. There are also other medications that can sometimes be used, uh, but I think that goes beyond the, the scope of the guideline. Specifically, the guideline did make the point that some of the experimental medications that have been proposed for gastroparesis are not yet approved. These include uh, ghrelin agonists and some older motilin receptor agonists. Are there other medications, as you mentioned, I think there are real off-label type therapies or pe things people have tried in practice. Did the guideline call out any kind of things that really should be avoided in gastroparesis that uh, are not necessarily effective for pharmacologic management? Well, the guideline specifically made the point that the based on the evidence from a very large clinical trial, the use of the central neuromodulator nortriptyline is not recommended. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we can't use antiemetics. So I want to differentiate mm -hmm. between the central neuromodulators that are kind of used to be called antidepressants, okay? Because the one big study done by the gastroparesis consortium in idiopathic gastroparesis did not show any benefit of nortriptyline over placebo. But let's keep remembering that we need to relieve the patient's symptoms. So using antiemetic medications, which are not particularly or specifically approved for gastroparesis, but which can be very efficacious. These include 
histaminergic antiemetics anti, uh, like uh, promethazine, for example, or 5-HT3 antagonists like ondansetron, granisetron, tropisetron. And also, rarely, you might be able to get very short treatment approved by the insurance company with a prepitant, which is approved for the treatment of chemotherapy-induced emesis. So, it's important. The guideline includes these clinical recommendations as well to make sure that we have the mechanisms to try to help patients from a symptomatic perspective. No, that's great. And I think that we all need to keep that in mind as we're treating our patients. And, and certainly it doesn't mean we can't use nortriptyline if we're using it for pain or another, another etiology, but it certainly sounds like it does not help from a gastroparesis specifically perspective. You know, I'm, I'm always curious as a gastroenterologist, we've tried a lot of endoscopic interventions over the years. And I think back when I was training, we all thought that injecting Botox into the pylorus was potentially helpful with gastroparesis. Where does your guideline stand on various endoscopic treatments for gastroparesis? That's a great question. Um, so let, let's start with Botox. If one looks at the entire literature, and we tabulated a lot of this literature in the guideline, there are a lot of open-label studies with Botox, which were efficacious, but then there were two randomized controlled trials which said, no, it's not that efficacious. Mm -hmm. There's been a recent study now looking at the distensibility of the pylorus using an endoflip device that suggests that you can select patients better for Botox injection if they have a poor distensibility of the pylorus. So while the guideline mentions that this is not indicated, uh, the additional data that's coming out may suggest that we can fine tune the patients in whom we select for Botox injection. So that's, that's one side. The other really exciting way to, to, to move forward in this field to try to help patients is the experience, mostly from open-labeled studies, using endoscopic pyloromyotomy or G-POEM procedure. And it, it, it's uh, really important that in April this year, the first sham controlled study of GPOM was actually published. It's a pilot study, but it, it had more than 40 patients. And the study demonstrated significant benefit for symptoms as well as stomach emptying for the patients who got the real GPOM procedure compared to the sham GPOM procedure. And in fact, among the people who got sham initially, they were crossed over into the GPOM procedure after the study was over, and they also improved. So there's now some good pilot evidence that the GPOM procedure could be beneficial for both symptoms and for helping patients' gastric emptying ameliorate. Oh, that's exciting. We need further innovation in this field. So Hopefully, when you come back and update this guideline again, we'll have even more evidence as to whether to move forward with that as an endoscopic uh, modality. Great news. Indeed. And we're also hoping that there might be uh, more choices that we can use from a pharmacological perspective, because uh, obviously, the vast majority of patients, hopefully, we can manage with diet and pharmacotherapy, as well as symptom, symptom uh, relief. Well, let me ask you, I'm gonna ask you a hard question because I know how much work and effort went into this whole guideline. But if our listeners needed one key take-home point from you that you think will really change their management of gastroparesis out of this guideline, what would you tell them that is? I think the most important is 
probably to make sure the diagnosis is correct. And that's why I do think that the scintigraphic gastric emptying solid meal over four hours, or if it's available, the uh, stabilized or breath test. Having the right diagnosis really points you in the direction of how best to try to manage that patient's symptoms. And that's why I put diagnosis at the center, at the, the pivotal point in terms of how to manage the patient. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, and thank you so much for joining us today. I, I learned a lot about gastroparesis that I hope to incorporate into my practice. And I, I would venture to guess our listeners feel the same way. Thank you thank again. You. Thank you. Thank you.